The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. It's good to be with you today. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 54. No, strike that, Isaiah 61. I didn't switch on the spot. I I meant 61. We are on a journey through this book focusing on New Covenant high points and areas where the book focuses very specifically on the work of the one we call Jesus. And this passage is foundational within that realm. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you chose, while we were still sinners, to send the Spirit-empowered King to display your presence to us and to bring us life. I pray that as we consider good news this morning, that you would meet those who need to hear it, that you would comfort the afflicted, set free those who are in bondage, that you would grant joy in the place of mourning and beauty and radiance instead of ashes. Thank you that you're a God who moves toward the brokenhearted, who does not break bruised reeds and who does not blow out faintly burning wicks. In our weakness, you are strong. In our hopelessness, you supply help. So turn our eyes to Jesus and let us magnify him increasingly. Thank you for your word that gives us hope. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. Good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The Word of the Lord. We're going to spend these next two weeks... Lord willing, looking at this chapter, it starts out with this one who's like a walking temple. The Spirit of God is upon him, and so where he goes, the Spirit is present. And he is declaring good news, sent by God to enter into a world of, that's, that's filled with darkness, filled with hopelessness, to bring light, to bring 
news that's good, not bad. And then he declares that he has a mission. That mission is described. We just read it. And then he unpacks the results. And we're going to see those results in the next week. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They'll build up ancient ruins, raise up former devastations. Verse 5, strangers will stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. You'll be called priests of the Lord. All of these are results of this spirit-empowered king's work. And then he begins to talk again. In verse 10, the one who claims that the Spirit is upon him now declares great joy. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? Because he's clothed me with garments of salvation, covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, so this one who is talking, is clothed. But not only that, he will rejoice because as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. And this makes this one sing. So we focus this morning on this proclamation of good news. There's a spirit-empowered king who has a mission, and he declares the Spirit's presence in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord, that is the Spirit of Yahweh, the causer of all, the supreme being over all things, is upon me. So if all that power and all that beauty, all that goodness, finds itself endowed upon this one who's talking, where he goes is probably going to change things. So the question is, who is he? Who is this one who has the Spirit of the Lord upon him? He's talking in first person. This is autobiographical declaration. We've already seen some autobiographical declarations, specifically in the servant songs. But before we go back there, where the servant person is talking, we have a text that, we didn't, that, that I jumped over, and we're going to go back and look at it right now. Just turn a page or two back to Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 15. Isaiah 59, 15. Truth is lacking, God says, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. What? He saw that there was no justice in the land. So God's looking down. He's looking down specifically on Israel of Isaiah's day. At least, actually, the Israel that Isaiah is foreseeing and declaring everything is unjust. There's oppressors everywhere. The weak are being pressed down. Darkness is reigning. And God, it says, saw that there was no man to stand in the gap. No man to intercede. No one. To step in and see change happen. 
And so God chooses, looking ahead into the future, declaring it as if it were already a reality, God chooses to stretch out His own arm. What is impossible with man becomes possible with God. He says, he, His own arm brought salvation, and His righteousness upheld Him. Notice that He enters in as a warrior. He puts on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Now, the he here, that is the one who's put on this armor of God, is that just God or is it this image that's mentioned in verse 16. His own arm brought him salvation. If the arm is a person, then all of a sudden, Yahweh has an arm by which he is wielding his sword, and that arm is a person. Anybody remember what passage in Isaiah that we already identified the arm of the Lord as a person? Anybody remember? Yes, Jesus. Anybody remember what passage in Isaiah? Disappointedly, there's no cross-reference in Isaiah 59 giving us direction. Look with me back in Isaiah 53. Pardon? 52.10. Okay. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. We're going to come back to this text, that text that John just mentioned, shortly. That's a declaration of the watchman, declaring salvation has come to Zion. The Lord has a strong arm, but look with me now at Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See that? The arm of the Lord is revealed to people, and when it shows up, what does it look like? Verse 2, he grew up before him, that is the arm grew up before Yahweh like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He is the one who is despised and rejected. The arm of the Lord is a person who in Isaiah 53 suffers on behalf of the many, but who in Isaiah 59 comes not as a suffering servant, but as a warrior king. The arm of the Lord brought God's salvation. When there was no one on earth to do so, the arm shows up. He's the extension of Yahweh into space and time, working against the curse and bringing blessing. Wearing an armor, a breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation. And believe me, this is on Paul's mind in Ephesians 6. The reason we can wear the armor of God is because Jesus first wore it and we are in Him. And if we are in Him, we have all the armor that He wore. God's arm brought Him salvation. And it was the arm, I believe, that put on righteousness as a breastplate. 
a helmet of salvation, garments of vengeance, wrapped in a cloak of zeal. Verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion and those in Jacob who turn from his transgression, declares the Lord. And now God talks to his arm. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. That's masculine singular. God is talking to a a person. And I think it's the person that's called the Redeemer in verse 20, who wears the armor in verse 17, and who's described as the arm of the Lord. The armor in verse 17, the arm of the Lord in verse 16. As for me, this is my... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is upon you. Remember how the servant person is called the covenant between God and his people. You are my covenant. That's what he is here. My spirit is upon you. The very arm of the Lord bears the spirit of God. My words I've put into your mouth. They shall not depart out of your mouth. Out of your mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's children says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So the arm of the Lord bears the spirit of the Lord and has offspring. And those offspring have offspring. How many of you have ever been used by God to lead another person to the Lord? That's who this text is talking about. How many of you were led to the Lord by someone else? You were offspring of offspring, offspring of the arm of the Lord, offspring of the servant of God, the Messiah himself. Yes? Whatever text we're addressing is the one we call him. So I'm not hesitant at all in a Muslim context. I think it's essential to call Jesus the Son of God. And yet, he's also the arm of God, it, meaning that he, the association in this context is as if he's part of God's body. And so, whichever text I'm focusing on, they use different ways to describe the one we know of as the anointed one, the Christ. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. That's the word, that's the verb to, the, to anoint is the, the, the verb related to the noun Mashiach, uh, Messiah, anointed one. And so whatever text we're focusing on, um, we call the Christ by that title. So, yes, Good question. Does anointing always refer to kingship? And the answer is no. In fact, it until we get to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, anointing always relates to priesthood. That verb is always associated with what God does to the priests. And it's only in Hannah's prophecy in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that the king is first called anointed. And then in 1 Samuel 3, 
the anointed king and the anointed priest are brought together into one person. So, two aspects um, from two different angles expressing the, the blessing, the favor, the spirit endowment upon this person. So, this focus here, my spirit is upon you, who is the person in Isaiah 61? He is, I believe, from Isaiah's perspective, the arm of the Lord. But as we already saw, the arm of the Lord shows up in Isaiah 53, which is a servant song, meaning that the, arm of the, that, that the spirit-empowered one in Isaiah 61 is also the very servant person that we read about and we see in Isaiah 42... These words, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. We've already seen him. He's the one that we're referring to now, who's talking in first person. The spirit is upon me. He's the one God promised he'd put his spirit upon. The spirit is on him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed he won't break. And a faintly burning wick he will not blow out. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I think it's Matthew chapter 4 that cites that text and identifies it with the ministry of Jesus. He enters in to where there's weakness. He's drawn toward weak, hurting people. And he won't let them go. He's the arm of the Lord. He's the servant of the Lord. But then we move back to the beginning of the book. He's the coming king. Here's what we read. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse, the the father of David, is being treated like the leftover leftover, uh, results of a great fire. We read about the fire in Isaiah chapter 6 that God would bring judgment on all of Israel and all that would be left was a tiny stump, a little shoot. And out of that small remnant comes new life. New life sprouts from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. And that branch now will enjoy the spirit of the living God upon him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So this is the one that we've been hoping in, the one that we've been focused on now for a year and a half. Looking at this book in Isaiah... This is a book about His coming and the results that He will bring. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's talking to you and me. Before Jesus ever got on earth, He had a script that was written for Him. These were His words. And He actually opens up His ministry in Luke chapter 4 in Nazareth, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and this is the text He reads. Today, this word is fulfilled in your midst, he says. So, why is the Spirit upon him? 
second half of verse 1, or second part of first half of verse 1. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Good news. The Spirit has anointed me. The very presence of God rests upon me. And God has set me apart with purpose, with a calling to bring good news to the poor. Now, elsewhere in Isaiah, this word for poor is translated afflicted or meek. So it's always tough as a translator if you're not really careful, especially in big books, but even in small books, it's easy to take words that can have multiple meanings in different contexts and apply different meanings to them, even if in common context they seem to have the same meaning. But then you and I, as English readers, don't get to see the connections that we may, that we were supposed to see. So consider Isaiah 11, where we just were. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It's a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear. And then it says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. Now that's a different word for poor than in our passage. And will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now that's the same word that in Isaiah 61 the translators rendered as poor. I want to get into the heart of who are these poor? Would it include us in this room if we're born into a middle class American home? Would we be considered the poor of the earth? Isaiah 11 here identifies those who are materially poor. That's the common word for the poor there, dal. And then it it broadens it to the meek. The, The gentle, the mild of the earth. Likely as opposed to the haughty, the self-exalting, the arrogant, the loud. Consider this text, Isaiah 29. In that day, that is the future day, after the exile is over, right now in this day, Isaiah's day, everyone is, or his majority audience is deaf. They can't hear. It's like, the people at your workplace, potentially, you talk to the guy in the cubicle next door and he wants nothing to do with Christ. You're sharing with him good news and yet to him, it's worthless because he doesn't recognize his desperate state. But the day is coming, Isaiah says, when the deaf will hear the words of the book that I'm writing. Out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Poor, meek. There's a sense here that the poor and the meek are those who have a sense of downtroddenness. They're here identified with blind who now see, with deaf who now hear. They are those that find joy 
in the presence of a Savior. Notice the contrast. The ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. So who are the meek? Who are the poor? It's those who do right, and yet who are oppressed by the strong. Those who are pushed down in the presence of a majority that stands against them when they honor the Lord. These poor and meek seem to be more than materially lacking. It would include a broader crew. You may have lots of money, but you stand up in Isaiah's day for the Lord, and you happen to be one who's oppressed, who's mocked. The poor and the meek are those who are not exalting themselves, but working for the benefit of others, and who celebrate a Savior, meaning they recognize their own neediness, according to Isaiah. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor, the afflicted, the oppressed, with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. Here, poor and needy are side by side, and they are those who are put in a state wherein others can push them down. And it's into that world that the good news is coming, to proclaim good news to the poor. Here's one commentator's reflections. Who are the poor? Who are Isaiah's poor? Those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. Those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Those who think that they will never again experience the favor of the Lord or see His just vengeance meted out against those who have misused them, those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes, sackcloth, and the fainting heaviness of despair, these are they to whom the servant Messiah shouts good news. I think that's right. And yet, it may be very easy in such a context of those words to distance ourselves from the audience that Isaiah is talking about. In the text I just overviewed, I think that the sense of oppression is real. The poor are those who are underneath the oppression of others. They are victims. But they are also those who are recognizing their hope exists in God. That their desperation has led them to look for a Savior. And I want to find myself among that place. What's fascinating to me is that Paul, in Romans chapter 1, says, I'm very eager to arrive in Rome and talk to you, Christian church. What am I eager to proclaim to you? I'm not ashamed of it, 
What's he eager to proclaim? The gospel. This gospel, good news, is not simply for those without Christ. The gospel is for those who already have him and yet who continue to recognize their neediness and that he's the only solution and answer. Isaiah's language here, gospel, his is the first book that goes out of its way to actually use this terminology. No other book in the Old Testament uses, when it's looking ahead to hope, looking ahead to help, in the days of the Messiah, uses the language of good news. Isaiah is the first one who uses it. And it's the language that Jesus chooses. I have come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. And I'm eager to proclaim it to you Christians, because you need to be saved. Christians need to be saved. Not simply saved from the penalty of sin, justification, but saved from the present power of sin. Saved from the daily battles with bitterness and laziness and lust. We need to be saved, and it's in that context that Paul's eager to proclaim good news to Christians. To those who recognize we are poor. When Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the same word that we have in our text. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's an already but not yetness here. The kingdom is theirs, but it's... They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom, inherit the earth. John? Before I'm answering my question, you had a keeps going around my head. Uh, commentary used the term despair. And, yeah. and I'm wondering where a person has become a Christ follower, but then feels such oppression that they are overcome with despair. And they're, they're no longer almost able to see their, their hope in the salvation that Christ offered. Where are they in this? Does that question make sense? I think, I think this text is for them. But it's also for those who are not in despair. It's for all who will look to the one who's bringing the good news. Is it a promise? Is, is which a promise? My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The good news enters into this darkness 
even Christians who are experiencing such deep, deep lows, and this good news is for them, it's for them. Um, It is possible. I think it's possible. The, but the faith, according to John 6, is a being satisfied. Come unto me, all you... No, uh, I am the bread of life. Um, those who are hungry... I am the bread. Those who come to me will never hunger. Thank you. And those who are thirsty will be satisfied. Those who believe in me, that's what it says, those who believe in me will be satisfied. So this believing is, is somehow a satisfaction. So the seeds of trust is... Oh, God, God, help me. The oppression may feel so great, and it may move them all the way to the point of death. Jesus says he'll hold his own, and the prayer is that 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 seed of faith, that seed of hope, though you die, yet you will live carries them to the end. Steve? The discussion reminds me of 2 Corinthians 1 where Paul says they were so hard-pressed that they despaired even of life. But that made him hoping God who raises the dead. And so, um, kind of what your, your answer to his question just kind of sounds like despair of life. And yet, even there, he's hoping, well, I don't know that it'll be better in this life. Open your Bible to Isaiah 40. How about um, the first two-thirds of this group open your Bible to Isaiah 40, then the back thirds open your Bible to Isaiah 52, and then the front third over here, Isaiah 61. I just want, as I mean, this is a short day. As we close, I want to look at the three gospel texts, okay? And I want us to try to get our hands around this good news. I just want to list everything that's good news in the three main good news texts of Isaiah. I just want you to hear it and let it settle on your soul. So in the Isaiah 49 text... What do you see that's good news? <coughs> Bruce, could you just read it out loud for us? You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem. Good tidings is good news. Same word. 
Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have him. Just speak it out. What's the good news in this text? Keep going. Yes? Yes? Notice that that's the only part of the news that's in quotes in that text. Do you see that? There's lots of description, but the only news that's in quotes, Behold your God. Anything else you want to add? This is good news. He's not a harsh shepherd. He gently leads. 52, 7 through 10. Who's got that open? Paul? Good news. What is it? Salvation. Salvation. Peace. Peace. Joy. Joy. Comfort. Comfort. Redemption. Redemption. And again, that's the only thing in quotes. Your God reigns. Verses 1 through 3 of 61. We've already read it, so just call them out. Where's the good news in our passage? It's for the afflicted. Freedom for captives. Release. A binding up. Proclaim year of favor, year of God's favor. Gladness instead of mourning. mourning. 
Now, the year of the Lord's favor, what's that matched with? Now, how's that good news? If this God who's coming as warrior is on your side and he's overcoming all that has stood against you, his day of vengeance can be good news for you. That's how he, the logic is at the end of Romans 12. Do, a, do not respond to evil with evil, but respond to evil with good. Because vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, final exercise. We're going to walk through each of these statements of good news. And I want you to tell me, does, it, does, does the statement itself focus more on God or more on us? And it's not wrong to have, it's only good news if it's for us. That's what makes it good. So, so don't be thinking it's weird that some of the statements are focused more on us. But I want us to just see, is, is the focus of the statement more on who God is or on what we gain? Okay? God's coming with a reward. Okay. What? Paul says Gus. Okay. <laughs> he tends his flock like a shepherd. Okay. So, the folk... Okay, fine. He gathers his lambs in his arms. His lamb? Oh, his arm. Does that refer back to what we were talking about earlier? I, I think it's plural actually in this text, but. Um, so the gathering in his arms, in his arm, it, it's, it's designed to give comfort. Behold your God. Gently leads. Even the, just the use of that adverb. It's, it's gentle. What? Okay. He brings salvation. Peace. Joy. Comfort. Redemption. Your God reigns. It's for the afflicted. Freed the, freedom for the captive, captives. Blah. Release. He's binding up wounds. Proclaiming the year of God's favor. Talk clearly. Us, okay. Gladness instead of mourning. Day of vengeance. Now, John's too quick. Let's just consider this. If you were to take all the us's off the board, and there's lots of people in this world who will not experience the us's, 
for whom God's intrusion into space and time does not bring good news. If you take all the us's off the board, did the G's still stand? Yes? If you take the G's off the board, did the us's still stand? Any of them? So what's the essence of the good news? God is the gospel. Consider that as you talk to people. You come and you you tell your neighbor, you want peace, you want forgiveness, without stressing what it means, a surrendered life to a king. The reigning God, the reigning God, saves and satisfies believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. If He's not reigning, there is no hope, there is no salvation, there is no peace. But what we're entering into is a good news that has God at the center and all of our benefits, and there are so many of them, our overflow of His reigning and our surrender. Keep God as He reigns through the person of His Son at the center of the gospel. That's why Jesus said, I came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. He's King Jesus. That's what the wise guys came looking for. He declares, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. He's been identified, appointed as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are now living in this already but not yet age, pleading with God, pleading with Him, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your reign be realized in me, in my daughter's, in my sons, in my spouse, in the students I teach in the classroom, in the person I work with, in my neighbor's heart. May you reign, and when you do reign, good news will be realized. And it's in that context, meditating on the fact that you have a God who's reigning, who's over all things, and who's for you, all of a sudden, even in the midst of the deepest oppression and depression, your heart can find hope. You begin to taste and see that God is good in the context of His being absolutely in charge, even though I don't understand why it's happening to me, or why it's happening this long, or why it's going on this hard. The reigning God is the one who saves and satisfies. And if you've got unbelieving children, unbelieving spouses, unbelieving loved ones, Just know that what you want them to experience is the reigning God saving their soul. And the only one that you can look to to make it happen is the one who is absolutely in charge of all things. God is at the essence, the center of the gospel. And all other elements of the gospel are fruit. So just let your soul rest today in a God who is big and in charge and for you through Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord was upon the Christ, anointed Him to bring good news to the needy. So admit your neediness and receive the help from the reigning King. Father, go before us. Thank You for this day. Exalt Yourself 
increasingly in our lives and help us embrace your reign, overcome our resistance, our fears, our anxieties, our sadnesses, our worries. Bring the comfort you've promised, the joy you've promised. Let it settle, Father, upon weary souls. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.